Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. A day after the tragic death of Boris Brott, we speak with a longtime friend of the renowned conductor. A local PC MPP calls Hamilton's urban boundary plan anti-housing. There's another call to improve wait times, access to mental health care, and doctor shortages in Ontario. A group of physicians, meantime, say low wages, lack of paid sick days, and absence of workplace protections undermine public health during the pandemic. Ukraine's president gives the UN Security Council a stinging ultimatum and tiger woods says he plans to play in the masters the gmh podcast starts now this is the good morning hamilton podcast on 900 chml phenomenal collaboration between hamilton's arkells and internationally renowned hamilton conductor boris brat who died yesterday at the age of 78 uh, just a sad and shocking story if you have not been following along, uh, Boris Brott was killed in an alleged uh, hit-and-run yesterday in which a suspect was eventually caught up on the mountain, and now the SIU is investigating this situation. But apart from that, we are remembering the life and the unbelievable legacy that Boris Brott has left behind. And what better way to do that by speaking with an individual who has collaborated with Mr. Brott for four decades Lou Zampronia is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Lou, good morning. Good morning. Uh, nice to be here. Well, uh, let me, I don't know. Yeah, good morning. Let me just say I can't help wishing this interview wasn't happening for the reasons it is happening. Yeah, what a, uh, what's going through your mind? What a, what a shocking situation here. Uh, what's going through my mind is that we've all lost, the world has lost a, a very talented, recognized, internationally recognized entertainer conductor and an educator and uh, i can only say that in my mind i'm just sort of content and happy that i had so much time with him and right back to the hpo days you worked with them for 40 years when did you first meet boris broad and what impression did he make on you at that time he scared the hell out of me you know and i had been working professionally in the business for years in europe and uh uh, my wife and I came back to Hamilton, and uh, where I grew up, and uh, I met Boris because he was doing a, a concert, a Philharmonic educational concert, and he wanted me to put together some dance numbers and work with the orchestra. And I mean, I've worked with big orchestras before, but uh, I don't think never anybody quite as dynamic as Boris was. And you said you were scared because you were thinking he was going to be something that he turned out to be not, or he just thought well, that... No, exa exactly. He was somebody I had heard so much about, and I guess in turn he hired me because he had heard so much about me. But we both had such different, diverse backgrounds uh, in the entertainment world that uh, this man was a, a legend already. You know what I'm saying? It's just you sit there and you walk into a room and there's 68 people staring at him waiting for this baton to go up in the air and come down. That's that's power. No doubt about it. Lou Zampronia is our guest. He is a collaborator who's worked with uh, Boris for 40 years, uh, remembering the life and the, the legacy of Boris Broad here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. What was he like to work with? Oh, it, it, you know what? I mean, you, you find this out when you're working with somebody like Boris. He had such respect for every, anybody's abilities and talents. And we worked well together. We learned so much together. And uh, it wasn't always uh, nice. We, we differed. We disagreed on matters because of our different backgrounds. But in the end, our collaboration produced some great music, great theater, and great performances. And he kept me on my toes. And 
he said, I kept him on his toes. <laughs> you mentioned that he had the, the power in the room waving that uh, little baton about. Uh, there's more to it than just waving that little stick around and, you know, making sure that everything sounds good. What made him so good? Oh, well, listen, I was always spellbound. I went to all, all the orchestra rehearsals that we were working on together, and the man is, was so talented. His ear was so in pitch. It was crazy because he would stop a middle, in the middle of a phrase and say something to somebody playing an instrument very far away from him that the third note of the bar 24 was wrong. And and this is in the midst of 68 other instruments playing at the same time. It was, it was, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. The man was so talented and loved by so many people. Uh, It's, he's going to be missed like crazy. One of his lasting legacies, and I'm sure this will live on forever, is the Brat Music Festival. What do you think that means to him and this community? Well, to the community, it should mean more than it probably does, uh, he this brought music festival is a powerful dynamic uh, gift that we have in this city completely i mean it's just unbelievable what this man does and as i said as a performer as an entertainer and as an educator because these musicians aren't all fully professional musicians he would bring people in because of their talent and put them working with somebody and they would learn more They'd walk away with a gift given to them from Boris. And one of the outstanding things about the festival is it brought um, a certain uh, segment of music to uh, a community, and many of them children, that they may have never uh, wanted to hear or, or were interested in hearing about. And they were exposed to that, some at a very young age, and have now really grown up to... Uh, respect and kind of uh, follow along and how that music is, um, you know, developed and and brought to life. Oh, you know, but this is one of his big things. People don't understand or realize what an educator he was. He he educated, he taught, he encouraged, he got people willing and wanting to do something and make the clock strike 13 by working hard at something because you love it. And he had a way of making you do that. He also was very straightforward and say, he would say, this is maybe not where you want to be because it's, it's too hard, it's too difficult, and it will destroy you. We're remembering the life of Boris Brat here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Boris was an internationally renowned Hamilton conductor who died yesterday tragically at the age of 78. Lou Zampronia is our guest, a collaborator who had worked with Mr. Brat for four decades. He always had a smile on his face. I, I met him two or three times, um, more often than not, here in the studio. Did he ever get mad or frustrated? He always seemed to be very happy. Oh, oh no, no. He, as I said, because he was an educator and he was passionate, so passionate about what he was doing, he would get angry with me because there are certain things that happen in the musical theater world that don't happen in the classical world or the operatic world. Uh, I remember having one discussion. He he would like the singer to end their long-held beautiful note until the orchestra was playing. When the orchestra cut off, he wanted them cut off. My background is that the vocal carries on for a split second longer than the orchestra and rings in the air. Well, it's two different worlds, but we work together Mm -hmm. and made it work. If you had to find one word to describe Boris Brat, what would that be? Can I 
say bright, shining, shining star? That's three words. <laughs> Absolutely. It fits the bill for sure. I think that's what I would say because I'm, um, oh, God, I'm missing him already. And, I mean, this is, this is so tragic. We were just, we were working together right now on a summer program. And uh, I hopefully will continue to work in his honor because uh, he was so passionate about what we were doing in the summertime. Last summer's shows were, uh, I mean, I hired a cast of 10 people to sing Broadway songs with a 68-piece orchestra. These kids are all performers. They work at Stratford, Shaw, uh, Drayden Festival, Hamilton Theater, uh, Theater Aquarius. They work everywhere. They were in awe of working with this man and hung on to every word that he said. And for me, that was my education, watching him work with these performers who thought they know it all. We all think we know it all, right? And then you meet somebody like Boris, who knows just a lot more than you do. <laughs> Lou, appreciate your time. Best of luck with that project. Can't wait to see it uh, be completed, and that'll be a, a long-lasting legacy in uh, Mr. Brott's honor as well. Thanks for the time well, today. Well, when we work Sound of Music this summer, I will dedicate it in his honor for sure. That sounds great. Thank you, Lou. No, thank you very much. Lou Zampronia, a longtime collaborator with Boris Brott, as we remember uh, Mr. Brott's legacy, dying tragically yesterday at the age of 78. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Some city councils, including Hamilton Council, are pushing an anti-housing and anti-growth ideology that is preventing homes from being built and driving up home prices. That is the voice of Flamborough Glambrook PC MPP Donna Skelly denouncing Hamilton's urban boundary plan, calling it anti-housing. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Our next guest to speak to this issue is the mayor of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger. Good morning, Fred. Good morning, Rick. Before we get to Good the to ba- be yeah, before we get to the boundary issue, I want to ask for your wow. reaction to the tragic death of Boris Bryant yesterday. Yeah, I was going to uh, I was going to lead off with that, and I appreciate that. And you know what? Uh, a tragic, tragic loss of such a great champion for our community, both uh, both in terms of our uh, development as a community, but in the, in, in music, uh, not only in Hamilton but right across the country and internationally, renowned talent and maestro, and certainly brought uh, music to. The masses here in Hamilton, uh, whether it was uh, playing at the uh, you know the steel mill floor at uh, in Tefasco, or you know having all your grade school kids come to concerts that he hosted each and every year, he was really really want to uh, to bring music and culture to citizens of Hamilton. Uh, he was a great guy, he was a great Rotarian, and certainly a good friend to many in our community. And such a such a deep tragic loss, and I can only. Uh, Express my sincere sympathies to uh, to Ardeth uh, Webster Broad and her family and children and grandchildren. Uh, this is a terrible loss for them, uh, by far greater for them than anyone else. But our community has lost a great champion. And what a great and outstanding legacy! There are very few people in any community that leaves a legacy like Boris is leaving. But the legacy will endure, and the legacy lives on in the many, many talented. Uh, 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 performers that he has mentored, uh, you know, over the years. So uh, he is—he is—he has brought music. He has brought talent. He has brought people to our community that have brought their talents, uh, and really, really put Hamilton on the map in terms of our cultural cultural uh, capabilities. That you know, there was a time that uh, you know it was believed that Hamilton didn't have any. We have had lots, and uh, certainly uh, uh, Boris Brot was 
central to inspiring that to happen in our community. We're going to have more reaction throughout the day on the tragic passing of Boris Brott. Uh, joining us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Fred Eisenberger, the mayor of the city of Hamilton. You heard the comment once again from PC MPP Donna Skelly that Hamilton's urban boundary plan is anti-housing. Do you get the sense that the province is going to rip up whatever you present to them in terms of the future urban plan here in Hamilton? Well, I find it to be a very unfortunate comments from uh, uh, MP Skelly that uh, really is counter to uh, what Hamilton is trying to achieve, which is uh, growth in, 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 in within the urban boundary as opposed to uh, continuing to sprawl out into our agricultural lands. And I'm not sure why that isn't resonating with uh, her on behalf of the city of Hamilton and certainly not with her government. Uh, you know, we have, we have plenty of space for some 36,000 units as it sits today within the urban boundary. That, that is new units. Our, our housing intensification rate has moved from uh, 20% to 64% uh, today. So more and more units are coming online each and every day in, in, a, in a way that actually speaks to curbing urban sprawl and making our community sustainable. Uh, all of that really speaks to it. This is not a no growth option. This is where do we grow option. And uh, clearly the province has set out a different uh, different direction. I think that what they're proposing has uh, significant unintended consequences and, and is going to make it very difficult for municipalities to continue to to do approvals in a timely fashion when they're actually penalizing the city for not uh, not achieving you know certain timelines when, in fact, uh, that p- penalization which means that we're going to be even more challenged to uh, process applications that we all want to get done. Also, they're looking at development charges and reducing development charges, which is what pays for growth. And so right now, growth doesn't pay for growth fully, and we, we've been working on that uh, you know, significantly over the years. They're actually suggesting that they're going to give us less revenues, which means that the growth that we are going to manage is going to land on the local taxpayers, not through development. So there's a number of problems within this approach that uh, they need to pause. They need to rethink this, and they're going to be hearing from mayors right across the province. Not only is there enough space in town, and we only got about 90 seconds to to discuss this, but studies have shown that it is actually cheaper to build within, because you're going to be uh, you know, redeveloping that infrastructure anyways, but those brownfield sites, those green spaces that are zoned accordingly, that's all going to be cheaper to develop as opposed to building out, because you're bringing everything new to that area of where you're building out. Yeah, every every time you spread out, uh, you know, beyond the, the the urban boundary or extend into the urban boundary, you are adding additional costs. And the additional costs are not just roads and sewers, and all of that is significant, and that is supposed to be developed through the development charges. So if you reduce those development charges, we're going to be less able to be able to provide those services. But it also comes with schools, it comes with parks, it comes with uh, recreation facilities, libraries, all of those pressures and all of those costs come to bear as opposed to using all of the infrastructure that's already in place. And so uh, it's uh, not a wise choice on their part. I don't understand why MP Skelly isn't advocating on behalf of Hamilton rather than against Hamilton. But uh, that's something they're going to have to deal with, and we'll see how, they, how this plays out. But I know that they're going to be hearing from mayors right across the greater Toronto and Hamilton area about the problems that this is going to cause and asking them to uh, to do more consultation and think a little harder about passing policies that uh, aren't going to work. Mayor Eisenberger, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today.
Thank you. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. That is Fred Eisenberger, the mayor of the city of Hamilton. A stinging commentary on his part, I would say, as well. Sounds like the province is going to get an ear view, an earful from some of the mayors in this province. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Important topic in the province of Ontario, really uh, around the world, and most notably in our neck of the woods as well, and that is health care. And along with that is mental health and physician shortages and wait time and, well, the list goes on and on and on. Here to talk about it is Dr. Richard Titus. He is the chair of the local Ontario Medical Association District. Uh, Dr. Titus, good morning. How are you today? Good, good. Uh, really good. Um, deal, we're all dealing with the ch- challenges of, that we're currently facing, uh, but otherwise, good. So as we know, this June the 2nd, uh, Ontarians are going to be going to the polls to vote in uh, the latest provincial election. And uh, there's physicians across this province that are saying, listen, there's a number of important topics and issues that we need to discuss that are based around the healthcare system. Um, most notably, wait times, um, mental health and doctor shortages. Where do you want to start, and what's maybe the most important thing, and how do they all kind of intertwine as well? Well, we did a survey in 2021, and it's the survey of physicians, healthcare providers, Ontarians, and they said, "What are what are those top top issues that we need to address?" And the top issues that that everyone can agree upon is healthcare, and we have to improve our healthcare, even though there might be even though there will be a short-term economic impact. So the focus needs to be healthcare, and an average is just not good enough when it comes to the healthcare of, of our patients, and, and specifically the healthcare of people in Ontario. And we're talking about the wait, to- wait times. When it comes to knee surgery, for example, the, the average wait time for knee surgery is between 42 and 182 days. But, but in the Hamilton region, it's 33 to 45% longer. Is that good enough? Yeah, many people, especially those who are on the wait list, are saying no. And clearly the pandemic hasn't helped matters at all. In fact, it has really worsened things because of, uh, you know, hospitals and healthcare settings that had to really pivot massively during the last couple of years. What's been the ripple effect? Well, the ripple effect is if uh, if the entire healthcare system, if we ramped it up to 120%, it would still take us 31 months to, to catch up. And we're, we're talking about the pandemic effect. What about the, the regular wait times? And, and now, as you know, Rick, we're, we're entering the sixth wave of COVID. Now, we haven't even factored that into the equation. Yeah, and at the end of the day, you know, the wait times aren't going to correct themselves. So there's some massive investment that needs to happen, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and one of the solutions that, uh, that we've considered and, and we're proposing at the Ontario Medical Association is an integrated ambulatory center. Um, this would take the, the pressure off the hospitals. And there, there's a lot of procedures that could be done there. And, and uh, for example, like knee surgery, hip surgery, cataracts, uh, endoscopies, colonoscopies. And this would remove the pressure from the hospitals. And the hospitals could do other procedures that would be more complicated.
Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dr. Rick Titus, chair of the local Ontario Medical Association District, also named the 2012 Family Physician of the Year by the Ontario Colleges or College of Physicians. Uh, mental health has really been uh, the focal point, not only during the pandemic, certainly before, but also as we are now, as you mentioned, entering the sixth wave of COVID. Um, a number of political parties, whether it's the NDP, the, the Conservatives in Ontario, the Green Party, all out making a specific point of highlighting their mental health care plan. Is it nice to see that politicians are paying a lot more attention to this? Yeah, I, mental health is, is a major issue. It's always been a major issue. Access to mental health has always been an issue. But with the pandemic, uh, has really accelerated, and, uh, and, and there needs to be a greater focus. Uh, I think we'll find that post, post-pandemic, you know, we'll have more need for uh, mental health. And, and one of the areas which, which we find promising is the use of virtual medicine. And with virtual medicine, uh, patients can access uh, mental health in, in the comfort of their own home where they're more comfortable and, and they don't have that angst of having to get to the doctor or, or the, the ability or the, uh, the, the concerns of going out in the public or taking three buses. So, again, mental health needs to be addressed and we need uh, more resources. And I think virtual medicine will be an opportunity to to be used in the to address mental health moving forward. Absolutely so. Dr. Titus, thank you very much for your time today. Good luck in pushing this uh, big snowball up the hill, if you will. I know there's a lot of hard work that goes behind it, but it's people like you and others uh, with the OMA and uh, healthcare facilities around mm-hmm. the province who are uh, hoping for bigger and better things, and let's hope that is realized sometime down the road. Yeah, thank you, Rick. And this is, again, an opportunity. Our politicians are listening now. And it's important that we voice our concerns. So thank you very much and and have a great and safe day. Thank you. And you too, Dr. Rick Titus, chair of the local Ontario Medical Association District 4, which is the district in our region. Also, as I mentioned, the Family Physician of the Year back in 2012 is voted by the Ontario College of Physicians. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A groundbreaking new report shows how low wages, lack of paid sick days, and the absence of workplace protections undermine public health during the pandemic. And let's not forget we're entering wave number six. We're almost losing count here. Dr. Amit Arya is a palliative care physician and member of the Decent Work and Health Network and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Dr. Arya. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm not too bad. We know that this report is based on interviews with uh, healthcare providers who are on the front line, uh, medical public health evidence gathered together before and during the pandemic. What is the consensus in this report? Well, I think it's a very, very important report. And, um, you know, in some ways, uh, it highlights many of the key issues uh, that we've known even from earlier waves of the pandemic. But really, the focus of this report is on working conditions and how 
poor working conditions and precarious employment has been a key driver of the pandemic. It's something which has contributed to widening existing health inequities. And it's really something that we have to address at this point in time now that Ontario is in a sixth wave. I mean, just yesterday, we saw data that shows that, you know, hospitalizations due to COVID-19 have, uh, you know, risen up by uh, around 40% in just a week. So this is something very important. And if we don't look at which communities are disproportionately impacted, specifically, as we highlight in this report, uh, you know, these are we're talking about communities of low wage essential workers, then uh, obviously, if the government is not acting, it's a clear failure to learn, you know, the lessons of the pandemic so far. You've been on the front lines throughout this pandemic as a palliative care physician. What have the working conditions been like and what are some of your colleagues saying? So um, I I do, uh, you know, a significant portion of my work in uh, long-term care and in home care. And I think many of the working conditions that, you know, frontline PSWs definitely endure in those situations have been highlighted. Uh, And and really, we can look at the working conditions of those workers and, you know, sort of make analogies to many other essential workers uh, who are not just in healthcare. But, you know, specifically, uh, we have uh, frontline essential workers in these, um, you know, sectors, uh, specifically in home care, I can tell you, who are not being paid a wage that we would consider a decent wage or a livable wage, even though the minimum wage, of course, has just gone up in Ontario, it doesn't translate to sort of what is actually needed. So in this report, uh, one of our recommendations is that we're asking for the minimum wage to be raised to $20. Uh, Another very important recommendation is equal pay for equal work. So often if you're a temporary agency worker and we see that in long-term care or we see that in home care, um, you get paid less. And, you know, the same is true for agency workers or, you know, gig workers in other sectors as well. Um, you know, they often actually, there's, you know, the data actually shows that temporary agency workers make 40% less than directly hired workers, and they're more likely to get injured at work. They're more likely to get COVID-19. So um, it's very important that we give people permanent jobs and we provide people full-time jobs or access to full-time jobs. And of course, you know, one thing which we've been calling for uh, throughout this pandemic, which has been very, very important, is the importance of paid sick days, and in particular, 10 paid sick days. Another pillar in the report, Prescriptions for a Health Recovery Decent Work for All, is workplace protections. Are we talking about more than just PPE? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. PPE is uh, absolutely vital as well. And by PPE, I think it's important that we recognize, uh, of course, at this point, we know so much about COVID-19. We know that uh, it spreads through airborne transmission. So it would be very important that uh, frontline essential workers are still provided masks uh, and, you know, specifically access to N95 masks. And as we know, there's no mandate here in Ontario, but masking is strongly encouraged. So that is something that's very important. But yes, you're right. It's beyond PPE. Um, some of the things I've already, uh, you know, talked about, Rick, it's sort of access to sort of proper wages and hours. So we talked about how the minimum wage should go up to $20 uh, per hour, equal pay for equal work. Um, you know, that's something that's very important. And I'll add that this is also something that, um, you know, is an issue um, which uh, disproportionately impacts people who are racialized. It disproportionately impacts working women. So these uh, communities are overrepresented among essential and low-wage jobs, which obviously contributes to the spread of COVID-19 and inequity. And I want to focus specifically on paid sick days because I think that's something that's very, very important. And I wanted to quickly illustrate that for our listeners. You know, 
We know that, um, of course, at this point in time, a lot of people, regardless of socioeconomic status, are getting infected. And, you know, perhaps you, you know, regardless of where you work, you, you, have, a, you have a pretty high chance of getting infected by COVID-19 uh, at this time if you haven't already uh, during, uh, you know, the previous wave in January. But, you know, the issue is what, ca- what happens afterwards, after you get, in, you know, infected. So, of course, if you have economic privilege, you have job security, you don't just have to take five days off, you can take 10 days off. You have time to go get a vaccine. Uh, you know, of course, we know the third dose and, you know, the fourth dose is being rolled out soon. But the third dose is absolutely crucial to protection from Omicron. You have time to go get that important booster dose or even take a day or two off afterwards to, you know, stay at home if you have some side effects. But here, you know, in Ontario, uh, workers actually only have three paid sick days. And this is supposedly a temporary measure. And they've had to rely on this inadequate level of protection for over 460 days. So we know that, of course, three temporary paid sick days is absolutely not enough. Um, in fact, you know, the, the recommendation for workers to go back after five days is flawed because many people are still infectious after five days. So what we need is we need 10 permanent paid sick days for all workers. And in fact, during a pandemic, because of additional time needed to look after loved ones who are sick with COVID, or as I mentioned, additional time that might be needed to go and get a vaccine, 14 paid sick days should be the norm. And this is what is recommended by health workers, the science table, as well as Canada's chief public health officer. Dr. Aria, we'll have to leave it there, but thanks for telling us about the prescriptions for a healthy recovery, decent work for all reports. Good luck with its recommendations, and hopefully we soon see them implemented. Thank you so much, Rick. Dr. Amit Arya, palliative care physician and member of the Decent Work and Health Networks. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The massacre in our city of Bucha is only one, unfortunately, only one of many examples of what the occupiers have been doing on our land for the past 41 days. And there are many more cities, similar places where the world will, has yet to learn the full truth. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you speaking through a translator, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, telling the UN Security Council yesterday that the Russian military must be brought to justice immediately for war crimes, telling the Security Council it has two options, punish Russia or disband itself. What are the odds of that happening? Well, let's ask our next guest. Andrew Wasilis is a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Rick. President Zelensky makes a good point, but we all know that the U.N. Security Council is not going to disband itself. The question is, will it punish Russia? Well, the Security Council's job, or its, its mandate, is to regulate uh, the course of the United Nations. And the United Nations is not a world government. It is a body of international consultation and if there is consensus, uh, then such as in the Korean War in 1950, uh, the, the, they can actually execute uh, an operation of some sort and actually take action. The United Nations exists primarily uh, to provide uh, much humanitarian assistance. There, there's UN agencies all around the world doing fantastic jobs. They do governance, they do election monitoring, and there is a connection with the International Criminal Court here. So, uh, like we all know, the Nuremberg Trials, 1945 and, and 46 on, the, the International uh, Criminal Court in The Hague, which is related to the United Nations, its job is, in fact, to bring to justice those perpetrator, perpetrators of 
war, war crimes or other international crimes, such as what we saw in Bosnia in the 1990s and their, their civil war. So we're waiting for the action to take place, and the, that's already started. The, the, uh, the prosecutors from the, uh, the, the Hague have begun to gather evidence, but this is like a criminal case. And it takes time. And so much to people's um, uh, frustration, which I completely understand, the United Nations doesn't have a the sort of fiat that it could actually go out and punish people. They, they ha there has to be a, a due process of law. This in, um, War crimes are, are war crimes con committed in a war. Wars are, are not outlawed by international law. What's outlawed by international law is certain actions. And these actions, clearly massacres of civilians, are outlawed. And so, but these have to be taken as matters of international law and international process. Russia claims its soldiers are not responsible for the killing of innocent, unarmed civilians in Ukraine. We all thought that that was going to be uh, the response from the Kremlin. How long will this take in the international criminal court? And will people like President Putin ever be brought to justice? Well, they, let me jump to the easier question. Putin is unlikely to be right, unlikely, in the sense that so long as he is um, a sovereign uh, and maintains the presidency of Russia, he has the protection of his own sovereign state. And the International Criminal Court, it, should it even find that there was a, a, a perpetration of, of, uh, of crimes done on the, in, the, in the battlefields of, uh, of Ukraine, he himself uh, would would be subject to the protection of his own state. They, they, there's no there's no there's no reach there that the court has. But let me just walk it back. the The process of guilt in this case will be judged or or assessed, and and the trials will be held in accordance who gave the orders. Now that can be run back to did Putin give the orders? But that would be part of the the trials. Okay. So the question is, someone on the on the on the on the battlefield, somewhere in the local areas of the village, gave some order to somebody to kill these people. The, the courts will start with, with there, and the trials will work backwards. They they will like follow the command, like you know, the expression "follow the money." They will follow the orders. Who gave what orders when? This is what has to be established. Andrew Rasoulis is a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We also heard from China, uh, which calls the reports and images of civilian deaths in uh, Bucha, Ukraine, deeply disturbing and is also calling for an investigation. What do you make of this latest development? Well, the Chinese, um, they're, they're very uh, unhappy with the war. I mean, uh, people say they're, they're playing the long game and positioning themselves to come out of this as best as they can. And, of course, they are. The Chinese are masters of, of managing their national interests, and they are. But the Chinese uh, see this uh, whole war uh, as being uh, a negative uh, for their interests and a negative for the international economy. Um, so yesterday, uh, it, the, the Chinese foreign minister, in fact, called the Ukrainian foreign minister uh, and said, you know, essentially, uh, you've got to measure the pain versus the gain here in terms of where this war is going. And, and he's encouraging Kuleba, the Ukrainian foreign minister, to move forward more on political compromises as as difficult as it is. And. Friday, last Friday, there were signs of some political movement in the negotiations. There were two points. I'll skip the details, but there was progress. Friday was a good day, it appeared. And then the, then the massacres, the evidence came to light over the weekend. And now we are in a very different political atmosphere 
where compromise and deal making becomes extremely more difficult. But Zelensky himself has said that at the end of the day, this war has to end. And he understands that there has to be a deal made. The question is, what kind of deal? What what Putin said, what Zelensky said, he's probably no longer looking forward to meeting Putin. Before he wanted to meet Putin, now he doesn't. But he understands that his negotiators will still have to, at the end of the day, negotiate a cessation of conflict here. But it's going to take a lot longer now, given what's happened. And it's going to be a very grinding war. And the Russians will continue to press their attacks in the east and the Donbass. Uh, and then Mariupol, that's the land bridge. That's going to be the focus of the battles the field right now. We have about a minute to discuss uh, what new tougher sanctions that Western nations are considering and promising to level against Russia. What can we expect? Well, the most significant that's come out so far is the, um, the banning of Russian coal imports um, as distinct from Russian gas. This is something that the Russian gas thing uh, is something that Europe simply cannot do unless they're prepared to actually go in the deep freeze because they there is no alternative. So this is it. Like so, that's still not on the table. But the coal has been put on the table, and coal is is very significant for Western Europe. Powers a lot of uh, of, of their electricity generation. So and for Russia, it's an important export. Uh, not not the same level as the gas here, but it's a significant thing. That is the most significant sanction that's now being it's on the table for uh, for discussion. Andrew, always appreciate our chats. Thanks for joining us this morning. You're very welcome, Rick. Thank you. That is Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on the latest in what is happening on the ground in Ukraine and around that war zone. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, earlier this week, golf legend Tiger Woods announced that he would be a game time decision as to whether he would play in the Masters this week. The tournament tees off tomorrow, and yesterday we heard from Tiger, who said, as of right now, I feel like I'm going to play. But not only will he play at Augusta National, when asked by a reporter if he thinks he can win a sixth green jacket and a 16th major, Woods replied, I do. So I guess it's game on. Jason Logan is the editor of Score Golf Magazine and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Jason, good morning. Good morning, Rick. What was your first reaction when you heard that Tiger is ready to roar once again at the Masters? Honestly, I wasn't surprised one bit. From the time I saw him playing in that father-son championship before Christmas, I figured we'd see him teeing up at the Masters. You know, he had four months then to get ready, to rehab. This is a guy who has never taken a day off from the gym, I don't think, in his life, so long as he's physically able. And just his pride and his eagerness to compete, something told me he was going to be there. Um, and I just really didn't buy it when he said repeatedly that, you know, April's a long time away and playing tournament is a lot different from playing an exhibition, riding in a cart. I just always thought he would be there. And I, like I'm sure all golf fans, are, are thrilled that he actually is. Now, as we know, this comes about 14 months after he was involved in that car crash that nearly cost him his right leg. What does this latest comeback tell us about Woods? Well, as I alluded to, I mean, I think without question, he's probably the hardest working golfer and maybe the hardest working athlete that we've ever seen. Um, he's determined beyond all belief. Um, he's stubborn a little bit too, I think. I think he's always been that way, which I think is part of what has made him great. And I also think a little bit that he has a history of kind of underselling and over delivering, especially sort of later in his career. 
Um, you know, I think he really downplayed um, his ability to come back by April in those those previous times he was interviewed, as I said. And I think he just loves to prove people wrong, including himself. And for Tiger Woods, it's like he's not happy unless he's working at something, working on a golf swing, working on a different golf swing, working on some injury that he needs to recover from. Um, it's just in his DNA. Um, the most competitive athlete we've ever seen, probably. And he's, he's there to win. In his mind, he believes he'll be standing in the winner's circle on Sunday afternoon. Jason Logan is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jason is the editor of Score Golf Magazine. We're talking about the Masters teeing off tomorrow. Of course, Tiger Woods plans to be there. Um, with that being said, Tiger has said that walking the course, potentially over four rounds, is going to be the toughest part about it. How do you think he's going to perform this week? What should our expectation be? Yeah, it really depends on his physical endurance. Um, Augusta National is, without question, the hardest golf course that the men play on a yearly basis. Um, tons of elevation changes, undulation. I mean, some of those fairways are like walking down and then back up ski slopes. Um, he has said that as far as the golf shots, he is fine to play. Now, keep in mind, he hasn't played tournament golf in a really, really long time, which is a different animal than just playing practice rounds at your home club in Florida. I think he's got enough raw ability and enough knowledge of that golf course to perform pretty well but if he does make the cut you know is he going to be laboring come saturday and sunday is he going to be very fatigued is he going to be able to recover three four days in a row to be his most effective i don't really think so i mean it's a lot to ask but i think he's got enough shots he's got enough in his short game and he's got enough between the ears in terms of mental fortitude that he'll probably make the cut and he'll probably make some kind of noise on the weekend. We'll see. Jason Logan is our guest. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jason is the editor of Score Golf Magazine. You can check them out online, scoregolf.com. There's three Canadians in the field at this year's Masters. There's uh, 2003 champion Mike Weir, as well as Dundas native Mackenzie Hughes, Listable Ontario's Corey Connors. What do you make of the Canadian contingent here at Augusta? Well, you know, certainly Corey Connors comes in as the favorite among the Canadians based on what he's done recently at Augusta National. He's got top tens in the last two appearances there. Um, if you remember, a lot of buzz about Corey last year because he made a hole in one on Saturday. He was within a couple of shots on the lead of the lead on the weekend. So he certainly has the ball striking ability to do well at Augusta National. But I got to tell you, I spent a lot of time talking to Mackenzie Hughes for a cover story for the spring issue of score golf, which will be out later in April. And he is so determined and he has put in so much prep work for this master's tournament. He's been to Augusta national twice. He skipped the tournament last week. He was an early arrival on Sunday uh, at Augusta national. It's a course that he believes he can win at. And he's motivated, I think by some of the coverage that Corey Connors gets that maybe he doesn't, um, you know, I think Mac has, a little bit of a chip on his shoulder and he's very determined to prove people wrong himself. And, you know, given all the work that he's done ahead of this major tournament and given the fact that in his last two majors, he was part of the story. He was in the final group on Sunday at the U S open. He finished six at the open championship last July. I think Mackenzie is, is really primed to make a run of his own this year. That'd be great to see. No doubt about it. Jason, always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today and enjoy the masters. 
Thanks, you too, Rick. That is Jason Logan, editor, Score Golf Magazine. Good luck to Tiger. Good luck to Dundas native Mackenzie Hughes and uh, all the other Canadians taking part. There's a couple of others, of course, O3 champ Mike Weir and Corey Connors from Listable, Ontario. The Masters, Augusta National tees off tomorrow should be a phenomenal, a phenomenal event. It usually is. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.